Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, PSENG, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority, New Jersey Sharing Network, Rutgers University, Newark, an anchor institution that is both in Newark and of Newark. The Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care. MD Advantage Insurance Company. And by Johnson & Johnson. Promotional support provided by AM970, The Answer. And by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Welcome to Think Tank, Steve Adubato with my co-anchor, Nicole Swinerton, our senior producer. Really interesting program today, three totally different guests. Can you line them up if you could, Nicole, please? Sure, so first up, we have Barry Ostrowski, who's the president and CEO of RWJ Barnabas Health. Then we have Joseph Fiordeliso, who's the president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. And then we have Nadia Hussein, who's the campaign director of uh, maternal justice programs at a great organization called Moms Rising. Yeah, the Moms Rising conversation, and, and it's connected to the Barry Ostrowski interview as well. We talked a lot about racial disparities. We talked a lot about social determinants of health and the fact that um, black women are uh, disproportionately affected in terms of um, motherhood. Let's talk in childbirth. Talk about some of the stats, which are alarming. Yeah, Nadia tells us that uh, black women are seven, seven times more likely to die from pregnancy complications than white women, which is just a really staggering statistic. And, um, you know, so many of these deaths are preventable. And she shares how that can be. And it really all comes down to access to healthcare, which, of course, Barry Ostrowski tells us about as well the importance of getting people that access to the healthcare that they need to clearly prevent horrible things from happening like this. And they have a right to it, no less than anyone else. And by the way, Joe Feared, at least the Board of Public Utility regulates the utilities in the state, talked a lot about clean energy. You may say, wait, well, what's the difference with clean energy? We're dealing with COVID in 2021. Clean energy matters, particularly if you're concerned about climate change, which is real. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. Uh, the other fact is who funds the show. Please tell everyone, Nicole. We would love to thank the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, PSE&G, New Jersey Sharing Network, and the Turrell Fund supporting Reimagine Child Care. So here's the thing. Um, on Think Tank, and I will not get on my soapbox, I promise. The whole idea is to get you to think about different topics, different issues, different situations that may not affect you directly, but affect all of us. You know, if you only say, I only care about what affects me, it's not going to work because something else affects you and someone else doesn't care because it doesn't affect them. Think about it. This program is about disparities in healthcare. It's about clean energy. It's about, frankly, the future of our country and our society. That's what Think Tank is all about. For Nicole, I'm Steve. This is Think Tank. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato coming to you remotely. Listen, I don't know how long it's going to be, but we'll keep doing compelling public policy-oriented program when we kick off today with Barry Ostrowski, president and CEO, RWJ, 
Barnabas Help. Good to see you, Barry. Same here, Steve. Thanks for having me. The co-authoring this book, Changing Missions, Changing Lives, How a Change Agent Can Turn One Ship and Create Impact. What's it about and why does it matter so much? You are the co-author of it. Look, Steve, I, I think it's about our journey here at RWJ Barnabas Health. About four years ago, we decided that great clinical health care is a terrific thing, but it's not enough to make our communities healthy. And so we invested in an entire platform of social impact programming, and that changed the mission of the organization. And so we have a very simplistic goal. Whatever we do needs to be adjudicated in the realm of have we made the community healthier? And, and the data is clear, the academic research is clear, simply having clinical programs is insufficient. That's only a 30 to 35% impact. The rest of it, for the most part, are social issues. And so we wrote this book to basically say to others, if it's your intent to help people, or if your core business is something other than healthcare, but you feel and should feel an obligation to improve the communities you serve, Here's an approach to do so. You can adopt a mission that links that which you do directly to the community, and you can build social programs that will have great impact on those who live in our communities. Frankly, we couldn't be happier having done that. It will take a long time for some of these programs to show the kinds of results we all aspire to see, but nonetheless, it's galvanized our employees, it's motivated all of us to do more to help our communities. And needless to say, we're talking to each other in the midst of the second surge of COVID and our communities are suffering now more than ever. So we're delighted with the new mission, which is now four and a half years old, but we encourage others to consider the same. So by the way, uh, I disclose a couple of things. Micheline Davis, the co-author of that book, a board member of ours, RWG Barnabas Health, a longtime supporter of public broadcasting including uh, what we're doing. Also, Barry, you are on the board of NJTV, are you not? I am, yes. Yes, you admit that. I do. And you... <laughs> and, and I don't have talk... my own show. I don't have yeah. my own show, but I'm on the board. Well, we're working on it. So, <laughs> but, but Barry, here's the other part of this. What I often think about is with healthcare organizations, yours and other large systems and other smaller systems under hospitals are struggling financially in the age of COVID, big time. Right? How do you how do you meet the bottom line needs of a massive healthcare organization like RWJ Barnabas Health, but still keep this commitment to an anti-racism initiative, fighting against the social determinants of health, having social impact? How do they balance out? That is a great question, Steve, and it is the challenge. And and it would be disingenuous for me to suggest that it's an easy thing to do. We're fortunate. We've had multiple years of outstanding margin growth. We've accumulated resources. And so the choice is, how do you allocate the resources you have acquired versus how much money you may be earning at that given time? And it's been our decision that we would use that which we've been able to accumulate over time and make sure that we allocated to these social programs and, of course, our anti-racism journey that we began not long ago. Now, no one pays for that, and so we need to pay for it ourselves. And in our case, when we look at next year and we see there'll be hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue that we will not collect, we made an overt decision 
that unlike the usual industrial re response by organizations like ours to reduce the workforce, we're laying no one off. And that is going to, in fact, reduce our ability to create any margin. It'll reduce our ability to uh, take in maximum revenue, but still, it is our commitment that if we were to lay people off and reduce workforce, just to balance the books, we'd be creating more hurt to our communities. So in our case, we're, in, we're effectively using that which we have accumulated over time. Now you can find efficiency and you can in fact go by for a year or two living at more or less a break even or even a bit of a loss. But in my view, if you retrench from the mission, if you step back from improving the communities, you've lost it. And so you have to continue. You know, it's interesting. The other thing is I've done a fair amount of leadership and communication uh, coaching at RWJ Barnabas Health. And one of the areas with clinical professionals is around, frankly, persuading people. What I mean by that is I'm talking about the vaccine. Now we're taping on the 8th of December. This will be seen largely in 2021, first quarter heavily. Persuading people convincing people that, particularly in communities of color, that this vaccine is safe. Now, I don't know all the details about what the FDA has done or hasn't done, and that's our job in the media to do that. But here's my question. How important is it that you and the clinicians at RWJ Barnabas Health lead a public awareness initiative around this vaccine? Having it is one thing. Administering it to those who need it is another. Go ahead. You're absolutely right, Steve. And I spent last week a couple of days working on programs that will attempt to persuade everyone in our communities to in fact be vaccinated. Look, there's no question about the fact that people are skeptical of a variety of things having to do with the vaccine, how it was developed, how quickly it was developed. You know, you know there's, there's almost an idea that this is too good news to really accept. And, and so people are rejecting it to a certain extent. Candidly, my worry is the vulnerable communities. There, the skepticism is not only about the development of the vaccine, but uh, decades, if not centuries, of healthcare dismissing the needs of black people and others who live in vulnerable communities. So right, hold it, it there, Barry. If you want to check out what Barry's saying, check out two words, the Tuskegee experiment, and that will explain a lot. Pick up from there, that, Barry. That's exactly right. And so, and so in addition to talking about the legitimacy of the vaccine, we have to break down, and it exists, unfortunately, rightfully, break down this concern that the healthcare system is pushing something onto a vulnerable community that's not yet ready to be absorbed. Um, we, it's and a must, we must convince people to do that. Now, there's a whole other aspect that you and I have talked about for years, and you've helped lead our people to understand. We have to learn how to deal and talk to the consumer better. You know, for years, it's been a very arrogant relationship. We're in healthcare, you're sick, we take care of you. We've never really been sufficiently transparent. We've never been engaging in the kind of discussions and dialogue that places the patient on equal footing. And as a result, the patient has never taken responsibility generally for him or herself. That's our fault, not the consumer's fault. And so here's a perfect example where we have to ensure that the consumer not only trusts us, but understands that what we're advocating is for the benefit of the consumer. And that's something, frankly, we're not terribly good at.
And by the way, as we leave this segment with Barry, check out an interview I did with uh, the great Alan Alda. Um, Alan Alda, uh, he teaches and coaches scientists to communicate in non-scientific terms, clinicians as well. And a lot of the area of my research and my work outside of broadcasting is communicating to non-clinical, non-technical, non-legal. Barry's a lawyer by training. I'm not going to go into the detail, but that's what Barry's referring to. That being said, we have a job to do, those of us in the media and the healthcare world, to keep educating and informing those about the vaccine and responding to those questions legitimately, legitimate questions. Barry Ostrowski, president and CEO, RWJ Barnabas Health. Good to see you, Steve. Thanks so much. We'll be back right after this. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Day after day, we rely on electricity for all the ordinary things in our lives and for the extraordinary. Mom! Hey, sweetie. How are you? So, tell me about the game. I scored two goals. That's my boy. At PSEG, our commitment to you now is more powerful than ever. We're joined once again by the president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities, Mr. Joe Fiordaliso. Joe, good to see you. Nice to see you, Steve. Thank you. So, Joe, we're taping this at the end of 2020, be seen in 2021. Some folks might think clean energy, and we're very involved in a public awareness initiative around clean energy. Oh, that takes a, a break during COVID. Not the case, right? Not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the wheels of the BPU continue to turn, and uh, uh, offshore wind, Steve, has become really the centerpiece of our clean energy program, uh, of course, along with solar. Let, let's go. Let's. I'm sorry for interrupting, Joe. By the way, uh, let's also make clear the Board of Public Utility regulates uh, the utilities, the cable. Uh, what, what do you regulate, Joe? It's, it's okay. an awful lot. We, we regulate all investor-owned utilities, water, telecommunications, cable, um, all the electric companies, public service, JCP&L, Atlantic City Electric, uh, Rockaway, uh, uh, Rockland, uh, and, and the gas companies. Uh, so we, we have a, a full plate, and that's really was our primary um, obligation uh, for many years until 1999 when the legislature des designated us as the Clean Energy Office for the state of New Jersey. Yeah, so let's talk about this offshore wind development. Um, without getting into the weeds of this process, what is it and why does it matter so much, particularly for the people of our state and region? Well, it matters so much because it, it brings us one step closer, uh, Steve, to our goal of 2050. And that goal is 100% renewable energy uh, by that uh, year and uh, an 80% reduction in carbon. Uh, so it, 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 by 2035, we want to have 7,500 megawatts of power, which would serve millions of homes in New Jersey, generated by wind offshore, 15 miles off the coast, and uh, which is not an eyesore, and uh, something that is, is, is one step closer to bringing us to that reality. Why is that so important, Mr. President? Well, it's so important, Steve, because climate change is real. And uh, there, there are many smarter scientists than I who are trying to figure out how to uh, keep the Earth at a temperature that will help to mitigate climate change. 
And that's what we're trying to do here in New Jersey by reducing our carbon output. And, and we have to keep in mind that 40% of our carbon out output comes from transportation. So we have to electrify. And, 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 and the way to do that is, is to renewable energy and slowly get our reliance off of fossil fuel. You know, you know, um, I only call Joe Joe's because we've known each other a long time, but um, President Fairliso, uh, I, I wanna ask you this. There's a new president. As we do, as this program is gonna be seen into 2021, uh, Joe Biden will be the president. How much difference does it make, Joe, who the president is and what federal policy is as it relates to quote unquote clean energy versus what the Board of Public Utilities, Governor Murphy does on their own? Like, can New Jersey separate itself from everyone else? No, no, and, and, and Governor Murphy has done a remarkable job. He has laid out a vision here that New Jersey uh, can follow and, and become an example for other states in the United States. And does it mean a difference when we have a Joe Biden as president? I can't overstate that enough. It, what, it, what could they do? Well, by the way, what federal agencies, uh, Joe, are actually involved in the kind of energy policy we're talking about? Is it the EPA or the well, Department of Energy? The, the EPA gets involved, but the Department of Energy is the primary um, uh, agency, department, uh, that we can cooperate with. And it all depends on what emphasis the President of the United States puts on clean energy. And, uh, and, and uh, President-elect Biden is going to put that emphasis on clean energy. And, and I am so thankful for all of us, particularly for your children and my grandchildren, Steve, that we're going to have a president who puts such an emphasis on clean energy because we have to mitigate the effects of climate change. We have a moral obligation to future generations to do that. Joe, do you think, and by the way, I'm gonna ask our folks to put up our slogan. Uh, we have an initiative called Democracy at a Crossroads. And someone might ask, well, what the heck does energy policy have to do with our representative democracy, and I'll try to make it clear. Um, there's a lot of folks who believe they have the right to have this thing called alternative facts, okay? They have a different reality, and okay, you have a different opinion, but the facts around climate change, can you have this thing called alternative facts? You listen to a certain network, they're telling you climate change is not real, certain elected officials, not that big a deal, or are the facts the facts about climate change, question here, I promise, and that is part of a representative democracy, dealing with reality. Indeed it does, and I mean, data doesn't lie. The <laughs> facts don't lie. They tell you the truth, and if we're smart enough to jump on that truth and do something about it, because I believe we can do anything we want as human beings, and if we're smart enough to jump on this, and say, we need a national effort, not just New Jersey, but a national effort. And under President-elect Biden, we're gonna get that national effort, I believe. And because we can do everything we wanna do here in New Jersey. But as we know, the wind comes from west to east. And if some of our state friends east, uh, west of us are burning coal, it affects our air. So we need a national approach. By the way, Joe Fertiliso mentions, he refers to Vice President Biden as president-elect. This will be seen 
while he's president-elect and after while he's president. Before I let you go, Joe, how about this? Real quick, can I get a minute or less on how COVID has impacted the effort here? Because you said it doesn't, the effort doesn't stop, but COVID, first of all, the meetings are remote. It's got an impact, right? Well, it does uh, to some extent, Steve, uh, but I'm very proud of, of our staff. Uh, they, they have really not skipped a beat here. Uh, you're talking about outstanding public servants who see and have bought into the vision because it's right. The data shows it. The facts show it. The scientists show it. And that's what we have to rely on. And uh, if, if we don't rely on that, then we're, then we're going haphazardly into different directions. And we can't do that. It's too important. That is uh, Joe Fiordaliso. By the way, we put up the website for the Board of Public Utilities to find out more about what they are doing in a whole range of areas. Uh, we're committed to public education and awareness around these energy-related issues. Joe Fiordaliso is the president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. Uh, Mr. President, I want to thank you so much for joining us. All the best, Joe. And all, uh, all the best to you, and thanks so much for having me. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, and follow us on Twitter at steveadubato. We're pleased to welcome Nadia Hussein, who is a maternal justice campaign director at Moms Rising. Nadia, great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Tell everyone what Moms Rising is as we put up the website. Moms Rising, I call it a movement, not just an organization of over a million members who work on advocating for policies that impact moms, children, and families. You know, there's some stats that are just so alarming. You know them better than anyone. I'll put them out there. Um, in New Jersey alone, black women are seven times more likely to die from pregnancy complications than white women. Still, Absolutely. no real progress? You know, the, nationally, the rate is black women dying at three to four times the rate of white women. That's even including education, economic status. So it's independent of all that. And this is a rate nationally that's gone unchanged for decades since at least the 20s. And in New Jersey, it's actually worse than even the national average. Okay, so you're going to see our team's going to put up the confronting racism uh, graphic because this is about institutional racism, racial disparities on so many levels, social determinants of health, et cetera. How about this one? Um, on average, 47 women die for every 100,000 live births in New Jersey compared to 20 women nationally. New Jersey women, unfortunately, die at two times the rate of women nationally. And our, we, we do have a national crisis around maternal health. So the obvious question, Nadia, is I'm not sure there's not one reason. What are some of the main reasons for this? I'll be honest. One of the biggest reasons is access to health care. It's estimated that 60% of maternal deaths could be avoided with better health care access. That's preventable. There's no reason. 60, wait, hold on. I can't let you just get past that. 60% of maternal deaths preventable? How? Access to healthcare. Our healthcare system in this country, as we know, is broken. Now there's there's been obviously movement to improve it. The ACA has helped the Affordable Care the Act. The Affordable Care Act, right? Yes. 
expanding Medicaid. When the Affordable Care Act, one of the main things it did was expand Medicaid, ensure that giving, you know, that um, if you're if you're given birth before that wasn't a pre-existing condition, which is ridiculous. But expanding Medicaid helped save so so many people who give birth. But as we know, it wasn't mandated that everybody do this. So, so many states haven't expanded Medicaid. Another thing with expanding Medicaid, which is one of the things that Moms Rising and many other organizations are working on, is that so many women actually die as soon as Medicaid ends. So in many states, within that two-month period when Medicaid ends, you see a, an increase in maternal death. So actually increasing Medicaid access to not just when you gave birth, but a year after birth, that postpartum period, is really crucial to impacting these numbers. Let me ask you this, because so much of our work uh, as broadcasters focuses on public policy, less politics and elections, but that matters because it influences, I mean, elections matter, and, and public policy is impacted. So here's my question. How much of what we're talking about, from your perspective at Moms Rising, is addressed by federal public policy around these issues versus state, or is it a combination of both? I will be honest, it's, I think both are not, not I think, I know that both are equally as important. In the federal level, in 2018, we are actually able to pass something called the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act. That was kind of the first really big piece of legislation to even begin addressing this issue. And what that did was just open up some research and data because the issue was in over 10 years, we didn't even have accurate data of what was happening to women. How do you even address the issue or even work on these policies without that data. So that's what that did. Um, and that was a first step because you mentioned the racial disparities. Uh, right now in Congress, about a year ago, you know, with this blue wave that happened, again, not making this political, but just being honest, a lot of women entered Congress, a lot of mothers entered Congress, and they, uh, the Black Maternal Health Caucus was established. And that caucus, you know, one of the reasons it was established was the leadership of Black women-led organizations like Black Mamas Matter Alliance, who had the lived experience to really inform this. Uh, right. That organization, uh, sorry, that that caucus started something called- the Congressional Black Caucus? Congressional Caucus, it's literally called, um, it's called the Black Maternal Health Caucus. It's actually a caucus it. around Black maternal health. And they established something called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus, which is a momnibus bill. It's an omnibus, meaning it's a bunch of bills, but it's called the momnibus because it has a packet of bills that will really be addressing these disparities we're seeing on that national level. And it does that by actually giving money to a lot of the states to implement some of these policies. But Nadia, I want to be clear because we're doing this at the end of 2020. There'll be a new president, Joe Biden, on the 20th of January. This will be seen after. You're saying that there was bipartisan support for this in Congress and it was supported by the Trump White House at the time? Yes, Trump, the, President Trump signed the Preventing Maternal De Deaths Act into law. And I will give so much credit to the organizations on the ground, the organizations on the Hill, including Moms Rising, that really, one of the things Moms Rising does is we share our stories, right? We have members in every single state. So it was bipartisan. We reached out to Republican and Democratic members of Congress to let them know what was happening in their districts. And you won't believe, and maybe you will believe, how many members of Congress have personally felt impacted by maternal deaths. Actually, the co-sponsor, the lead co-sponsor of the bill, the Mater Preventing Maternal Death Deaths Act, was a Republican woman out of Washington state, a Republican member of Congress. And by the way, uh, it's interesting. This is not political, but in fact, it is a fact that of the women who were elected, of the Republicans who were elected to the House in the 2020 election, a disproportionate number of them are women. Is that reason to be more hopeful in this regard? 
I think what women are able to do, and studies have shown this, is we're actually more likely to reach across the aisle, be more bipartisan, come up with more solutions, introduce more groundbreaking pieces of legislation, because regardless of political party, many of us as either mothers or women or just, we have lived experience and we know what other mothers and women go through. Let, let, I got 30 seconds left. Impact of COVID on this initiative, on these issues? COVID has been devastating, as you can imagine. The racial disparities have only gotten worse. A new report just came out showing that comorbidities with a pregnant woman getting COVID, her death rate goes up, and that also falls along racial lines. There's a lot of work to be done. When the pandemic hit, uh, people were not able to bring in their uh, their doulas into their, into their rooms, and, and so that's been another problem. Another thing I will say really quickly is the reproductive justice access to maternal health. We're, that together is another way to improve all of this. Maddie, we learned a lot from having you, and I assure you we'll have you again, you and your colleagues at Moms Rising. Uh, Nadia Hussein, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. You got it. I'm Steve Adubato. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, PSCNG, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, New Jersey Sharing Network, Rutgers University, Newark, the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey, the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care. MD Advantage Insurance Company. And by Johnson & Johnson. Promotional support provided by AM970 The Answer. And by the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. Choosing a new family doctor can be confusing. Check with your health insurer to see which physicians near you participate with your plan. Find out which hospitals the doctor uses and who covers when the doctor is away. And remember to schedule an appointment with your new doctor in advance to fill out any paperwork without the added stress of being sick.